in 2 Chronicles. We're going to read the text toward the end. But I would like you um, and encourage you to take some notes this morning uh, to use that part of the bulletin that has a place. Grab a pen right now. And um, we're going we're gonna to summarize a little bit before we get to our main text. And then the Lord's going to give us some, some good spiritual principles and some application. Last week you remember that we looked at the life of Jehoshaphat who did so many things well, but made several alliances that damaged uh, not only his kingdom, but his spiritual growth and his character and his reputation. And it says in the text in chapter 18 that Jehoshaphat initially took great pride in the ways of the Lord, but he allowed himself to slip spiritually. And, and as he hung out with the wrong people and kept going back to his old way of life, that that adversely and negatively affected his relationship with the Lord. And I know for some of you that, that message really impacted you and the Holy Spirit uh, spoke to, to some of us, maybe all of us, uh, as we kind of examine relationships that maybe aren't honoring to the Lord and, and some of the actions that we have in our life that, that we need to, to break free from. But that's not always easy, is it? There are some sins, there are some habits that are so uh, ingrained in our lives that when we talk about dying to self or we talk about putting off the old man, there's a, there's a measure of sacrifice required there that maybe we're not ready to give or that maybe we don't feel, uh, I hate this word, but, but comfortable doing right now. It's, it's become so much a part of us that we're not willing to give it up yet. And that can be compounded when those sins or those habits or, or those things that are part of our life have been part of our family history. Maybe we, we uh, observe them with our parents or our relatives or, or we uh, learn them, somebody taught them to us or we participated in them for most of our lives. And, and these can be spiritual, they can be issues like, like fear or, or lack of faith, maybe you come from a, from a generational cycle of lack of faith, people that had difficulty trusting, or, or maybe rebellion, or, or um, some kind of hard-heartedness, some spiritual resistance there. Maybe that's, that's in your family history, and you're kind of the one that broke free by the grace of God, and, and you're burdened for those that are around you because you know the, the pain of that. Maybe it's a spiritual issue that's been ingrained in, in the cycle of your life. Or maybe it's more a lifestyle. Maybe infidelity runs in your family or a divorce or, or you've learned anger or, or a critical spirit. Maybe you've seen uh, abuse or, or uh, addictions like alcohol or drug use or, or other destructive behaviors. And you've, you've looked at that. You know the damage that it does. You may even resent the damage that it's done uh, in your life or, or in your family's life. And it may, have, it may have very negatively impacted you emotionally, uh, physically, relationally, uh, even spiritually. But in some way, there's is almost something comforting about it. There's almost uh, something that, that you cling to, or I cling to, kind of like Linus's blanket. It's, it's so familiar, even though you know it's destructive. It's so familiar, even though you know it's not honoring to the Lord, that you keep holding on to it. And you know it personally affects you, no more so than hindering your spiritual maturation or, or, or your witness, but, but maybe we've lived in that cycle of repetition for so long that we're having trouble surrendering what that is to the Lord. Now, the Bible talks about this, and the Bible provides an abundance of examples 
um, uh, of this in Scripture. And as I continued to, this week to, to kind of read and study past Jehoshaphat uh, into chapter 21 and 22 and beyond, I, I saw this principle of cyclical behavior uh, repeated over and over with no change. And, and even though the Lord speaks about it, even though the Lord warns the people about it and warns the kings about it, and even though he disciplines for it, they don't break from it. It all began, if you want to run back to chapter 18 just for a moment, it all begins with Jehoshaphat compromising what he knew was right, compromising what was holy and what was pleasing to the Lord for the sake of aligning himself with and, and kind of uh, appeasing people who this text says hated the Lord. Jehoshaphat did right, but he didn't take a full stand for the Lord. He wavers back and forth between living for the Lord and living for himself. He tries to kind of uh, negotiate obedience, uh, and he gets to the place where not only is his walk diminished, not only is his witness diminished, but eventually he establishes a legacy of spiritual weakness that continues on for decades, actually over 150 years. One of the spiritual principles that we need to remember, I think, all the time in our lives is that we never do things in isolation. There's no action, there's no attitude that, that you carry or do that, that is done by yourself. There's always somebody watching. There's always somebody that's learning from our words and learning from our example and, and ultimately evaluating Based on what they see, based on what they hear, people are constantly evaluating what our convictions are, whether our convictions for the Lord are authentic and consistent, and then evaluating whether we're really living by those convictions every moment of every day. And for someone who's been saved by the blood of Christ, someone who's been redeemed from their sin, who, who has Christ as their Savior... The, the, the transforming power of God being filled by the Holy Spirit. There are two verses that God gives us in 1 John that, that set the highest and, and probably the most non-negotiable standard possible uh, for someone who says, I trust Jesus Christ. As we sang, Jesus paid it all, and we raised our hands, and we praised the Lord for his goodness, and we're so grateful for the table. All right, if that's, if that's you this morning, if you're grateful for that, then the Bible gives us two verses that set the standard. Now, I want to just write down the text. You can look at them later. 1 John 1.6. 1 John 1.6 says that if we, speaking of believers, say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Then a chapter later in 1 John 2.4, John says if somebody claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in truth. Now, that's hard to read those because there's really no equivocation, is there? there there's kind of no latitude and, and, and room for interpretation on that. They're very straightforward in their everyday doctrine. They make it clear that the identifying mark of a believer is not continuing in sin. Now, obviously, we all know that sin is, is, is damaging 
to us personally in every way. I, I don't think there's anybody in this room that, that is oblivious to that, that is ignorant of that, that would flat out deny that, that, that sin exists and sin has an effect on us. Maybe we don't want to admit it because we know that by admitting it, we're going to be required to stop. But everybody knows that there's sin. Everybody knows that sin has an effect. So we've talked hundreds of times about the effect of sin on us. But this morning, I'd like to, to kind of focus our attention on how it affects those around us. How it affects our home and our family members, uh, our spouse, our kids, future generations, people that are around us, our friend, the house of the Lord. How it, how it affects church when, when we are not living the way we're supposed to live. And that's what's illustrated so definitively here between chapter 20 where we left off with, with Jehoshaphat last week and chapter 29 where we're going to read in a couple minutes about Hezekiah. And what I'd like to do, even though it's a little unorthodox, is to, to very quickly walk through the history of eight generations. From chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, to the start of chapter 29 is the span of 155 years. Eight generations, they all come from the same family, they're all kings of Judah, they all are completely aware of the truth of God, and they all receive a word from the Lord. So let's be real clear up front, there's no confusion about God, there's no uncertainty about what the Lord's word says, there's no uh, lack of discernment about what he called to do, uh, called them to do, there's, there's no confusion whatsoever about the cause and effect of sin and how it affects them versus living righteously. In fact, each generation that succeeds the next over the eight generations, over the 155 years, each generation can, can watch what happens before and learn from them. And what we're going to see, and I want you to, to, to write this down and kind of chart this as we study this morning, what we're going to see is that there is a cycle of sin and disobedience that wasn't broken from generation to generation. It just kept repeating itself. And as it repeated itself, it just did more and more damage. Now let me break for a second and say that, that uh, and, and I hope this, this is a word of, of both challenge and encouragement to you, that, that you may be in the middle of that kind of cycle this morning. You may be here and there's a, there's a cycle in your family of repetitive behavior and it's carried on through generations and you're discouraged by it. Or maybe there's a cycle in your life this morning of sin and, and you feel like you can't break free from it. And you've gone to groups and you've made efforts and you've told friends and you've, and you've tried everything. But it, but it just hasn't been broken and you keep going back and forth. Let me tell you this morning, and we just celebrated it, that God's grace can break you free of that. That the mercy of God, the love of God, the power of God can break you free from that cycle of sin. And you can and will, when you trust Jesus Christ fully, you can and will live in victory and holiness. God wants to break those destructive cycles, those cycles of sin, and he wants to start a new cycle and a new path of spiritual consecration and spiritual holiness that will take us now from this path of destruction to the path of life. And in going on that path of life, we can influence hundreds, thousands, millions of people for generations to come. So, 
this morning? What cycle are you on? What, what re repetition is happening in your life? Because as we look at this, and we're going to go through this real quickly, eight generations, we're going to see this illustrated in the text. And I would encourage you, even if you don't usually take notes, kind of make a little chart maybe or... Or write the names down of these kings. You may not even be able to pronounce them. That's fine. I probably can't pronounce them either. But, but just write the name of the king and then write what happened. Because we're going to see how this goes from generation to generation. Okay? Starts with Jehoshaphat. We'll just, you can just turn as we go. Chapters 18 to 20, we see that he served the Lord most of the time. But he established and maintained poor alliances that prevented him from finishing well. Okay? We studied him last week. Let's go next to his son. His son was Jehoram. And Jehoshaphat, when he, right before he died, he gave all his sons all his wealth. But when Jehoram became king, he immediately killed all his brothers. He was scared, intimidated, greedy. I don't know what, what the case was. But, but as soon as Jehoshaphat dies and the boys all have the inheritance, uh, Jehoram turns around as the king and kills all his brothers. And the Bible says here in the text that he was walking in the way of Ahab. Now that's never a good thing when you're walking in the way of Ahab. But Ahab was his father-in-law. So Jehoram had made a bad alliance. Now, God's gracious, and he says, I'm not going to destroy the kingdom, even though Jehoram's walking in the wrong direction, because I made a covenant with David, and because I made a covenant with David, I'm going to allow the kingdom to endure, but I am going to also allow Jehoram to, to endure constant opposition in battles. Now, side note, spiritual principle here. When we are in opposition, when we're facing battles in our lives, we have to be spiritually mature and spiritually filled to the extent that we understand and distinguish when opposition is spiritual warfare and when opposition is spiritual discipline because they have two different purposes. Spiritual warfare comes out of walking with the Lord. Spiritual warfare comes with being close to the Lord, being in the presence of the Lord, being in His Word, uh, calling on His name in prayer, worshiping Him, giving to Him, serving Him, witnessing of Him. When we're doing that full bore, when we're fully sold out to the Lord, we are going to face warfare and opposition. It will happen. There's no getting around it. And the closer you get to the Lord, the more the opposition is going to increase. But then there's another type of opposition. And that opposition is the Lord's discipline. And we need to have the discernment to know that when we are not walking with him, and that when we are, are in rebellion in him, that that's not then spiritual warfare, that's spiritual discipline. And spiritual discipline is a time for us to get humble before the Lord and to confess our sins and to make sure that we're right with the Lord so the hand of discipline will be lifted and we can start walking with him. Now, Jehoram didn't care about any of that. It didn't matter to him. So he sets up idols, and he lays the nation, the Bible says, to prostitute themselves spiritually. They, they became spiritual harlots. They, they had the wrong desires. And then God sends Elijah, and Elijah gives him a letter that says, you better watch out because God's about to punish you. Never causes Jehoram to, to repent. And at the end of his life, not only do three armies invade Judah and carry away all his possessions and all his family except for one son, but God says, I'm going to give you a disease, and his bowels become infected, and at the end of his life, his bowels burst through his stomach, and he dies an unbelievably painful death. 
So that's Yehoram. That went well, didn't it? He turns away from the Lord. And it says, interesting, in chapter 21, this is how the Spirit describes the aftermath and his legacy. It says, he departed with no one's regret. Can you imagine what an awful tombstone that would be? This person departed with no, nobody misses him, nobody cares. That's how bad Yehoram was. Well, after Yehoram is his son Ahaziah, and he's drafted as king, he's Jehoshaphat's grandson, okay, second generation, and you'd think that being taken captive and watching his brothers all get killed by the enemies and, and, and seeing what happened to his dad physically and militarily and, and clearly knowing it was the discipline of the Lord that did that, you would think that all of that would, would sober our friend Ahaziah and get him back on track spiritually. How many think that happened? None of you. That's because it didn't happen. Ahaziah reigned just one year, and the Bible says that he did wickedly like the house of Ahab because his mother, an evil woman named Athaliah, she counseled him to do that. His mom came along and said, you're king now, you should be wicked and evil, and to his destruction, the text says that he did that. So he decides to ally in battle with Ahab's son. And they go to fight the Arameans, but in chapter 22, they get their clock cleaned. They get destroyed. And it says the destruction of Ahaziah was from God. Because God had anointed a prophet named Jehu. I know this is confusing, but stay with it. God had brought a prophet named Jehu to destroy the house of Ahab. So eventually, Jehu kills Ahaziah. And there's not one person in the house of Ahaziah that can take over the kingdom because God is sending a warning to the house of Judah. He's saying, stop opposing me, stop, stop standing against me, start yielding yourself to me, and I'll work. But as long as you oppose me, I I'm going to deal with your sin. Now listen, we love the grace of God, right? We love the mercy of God. We, we love, we just sang it, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. I, I love the mercy of God because it has radically changed my life for all eternity. But, but as much as we love the grace of God, we must never forget that God is also holy and just. And he will not allow sin to just go unpunished. He won't allow sin to just be dealt with. Now we can say, well, you told me I'm covered by the grace of God. You are if you trust Christ. You told me that my sins are forgiven forever. They are. You told me that they're washed clean. They are. Scripture says that. But if we continue to sin, God has to deal with that. I forgive my kids for stuff that they did when they were five. I can't even remember it. At the time, it seemed like a big deal. Well, we've got to come down on the kids. They're five, and they did something wrong, and they broke a lamp or whatever, so we've got to discipline them and send them to time. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? I couldn't tell you one thing that my three kids did when they were five years old that I had to punish. I can't remember it. There's no, there's, I know I'm old. Stop picking on me, okay? But I, I, I have no knowledge of it. But if they continue to rebel, I've got to deal with it. So God can remove the sin, exonerate sin, forgive the sin. But if we continue to sin, that's an abuse of what we just celebrated. That's an abuse of God's grace. And God will discipline us because he loves us and because he wants us to be like Christ. So we can love the grace of God, but we also have to hate sin. Well, Athaliah, the, the queen mother, she destroys everybody. 
her daughter grabs one of the babies and runs away and hides for seven years. And after seven years, a man named Jehoiada decides enough already. So he goes around the nation and he starts to gather people that, that have some desire for the Lord. And he starts to meet with the Levites who are the priests and to make a covenant. And they all get together in Jerusalem and they say, enough of this corruption. We're going we're gonna to bring about reform. And that happens in the middle of chapter 23. Athaliah is killed, and there's a spiritual turning point, and reforms are started. If you look at the middle of chapter 23, you see in verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18, there's a covenant to be the Lord's people. And the priests are established, and burnt offerings start to be reinstituted. In verse 19, the temple's purified. And it says in verse 21 of chapter 23 that all the people rejoice, and everything's calm. See, calmness and peace only occurs when you put the Lord first. Turmoil, stress, anxiety, fear, spiritual inconsistency, those all come from not putting the Lord first because the Bible says he's the God of all peace. He says that the peace that passes understanding, you can't even grasp how it's happened. It will fill your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So if you're in turmoil this morning and you're churning and you're uptight and, and there's inconsistency and you're stressed and you're anxious and it goes beyond what i got to face at work tomorrow or what I'm dealing with or whatever, if that's churning in your spirit, that's because the Lord is not being put first in your spirit because when you put the Lord first, there's peace. So they start to institute reform and peace takes over. And then Joash, the, the baby that was taken away, the great-grandson of Jehoshaphat, he becomes the king at age seven. Now that would be a problem, except he's got the guy that brought about the reforms, Jehoiada. He's got him as a, as a spiritual advisor. And the Bible says that as long as he listened to Jehoiada, that everything was great and there was peace and things were going well. But, but some of Athaliah's sons come and try to corrupt the place. But they push against them, the temple's repaired, the people give generously to the work of the Lord, and, and, and everything's great until the day that Jehoiada dies. And as soon as Jehoiada dies, and this is the way the devil works, the king starts to be surrounded by some bad influences again. And Joash, who had walked with the Lord and brought about reform, now starts to make bad alliances of his own. And within two verses, it says that he abandons the house of the Lord and rebuilds the idols. See, our hearts and our minds can get turned very quickly when we don't guard them. I want to say that again. Our hearts and our mind can get turned very quickly when we guard, don't guard them. We need to be jealous for holiness. We need to be jealous for holiness. We need to be defensive about any spiritual wavering. Now ask yourself a question this morning, that when the spiritual influences aren't close by, do I give in to sin? Is there a church you and a non-church you? Is there a Sunday morning you and, and an every other day of the week you? Is there an inconsistency there? 
Because if there is, you're not walking with the Lord the way God's called you to walk with him. And, and your heart quickly will get turned because the devil is insidious and he's constant and he's deceptive and, and, he, and he's brutal in terms of his attack. So he's going to look for any weakness, any moment where our guard is down, where we're just kind of saying uh, spiritually that we're kicking back and not really making any effort and not really guarding our heart. I just need a break. Listen, when that happens, the devil's not going to go, well, that's nice for him. I think I'll give Paul a little break today. You know, he's been under a lot of spiritual warfare. I've been pretty mean to him. I think I'll just give him Monday off. Uh-uh. The moment the devil sees an opening, he dives in hard. The moment there's letdown, the moment there's... I'll just relax for a minute spiritually. I'll just, I'll just let my guard down. I won't protect my walk. I won't protect my character. I won't protect my witness. The, the moment that guard drops an inch, the devil says, oh, I'm on that. So we have to be jealous for holiness. God's gracious, yes. But he won't ignore hard-heartedness. He won't ignore callousness. And Joash and the people it says, would not listen. They, they forsook the Lord. Well, eventually, i got to move quickly. Joash's servants kill him. And his son Amaziah, the great-great-grandson of Jehoshaphat, Amaziah becomes king. It says, Amaziah did right in the sight of the Lord. Awesome, but not with his whole heart. That is always a dangerous place to be. It's almost more dangerous than flat-out rebellion because you think you're okay, but you haven't given the Lord your whole heart. So he did right, but he didn't do it wholeheartedly. The Bible calls us to live wholeheartedly, and you may say, well, that's too much. But the Lord impressed upon my spirit last night. Imagine if Jesus had been half-hearted going to the cross. Lagging behind, kind of dragging his heels, resenting the sacrifice, angry that he had to take our sin upon himself, furious that he had to be whipped for you and me, being spit on by his creation, giving in to the enemy's temptation, the Pharisees' criticism, it's just too much, can't do it, I don't know, I know I'm supposed to do this, but oh. You ever had that picture of Jesus? Jesus didn't go to the cross half-heartedly. That would be unthinkable to us. And if that was true, there would be no salvation available to us because he wouldn't have been worthy of dying for our sins. And yet the Bible says the servant's not above the master. So how can I expect Jesus to go to the cross wholeheartedly for the joy that was set before him? He went to the cross and redeemed me. Praise the Lord. But you know what? I'm only giving God half my heart this week. How can we expect that, that the master should give wholeheartedly, but we can give half-heartedly? Amaziah sets up idols. He's supposed to be living for the Lord, but he sets up idols, and the Lord's anger burns against him, and God sends a prophet again. And Amaziah, it says, wouldn't listen to the Lord. And he's defeated in battle. So his son, Uzziah, takes over. The great, great, great grandson. That's three greats and one grandson. Everybody got it? 
We've studied Uzziah in depth, so I won't take time on him. 2 Chronicles 26, he starts great at age 18. He lives right. He takes wise spiritual instruction. He seeks the Lord. He has spiritual counsel around him. The Bible says as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And Uzziah was a fantastic king. Wise, brilliant, great strategist, great soldier, uh, very great economically. He, he was feared throughout the world, but he became proud. And he stopped seeking the Lord, and he became unfaithful to the Lord. And then he goes on this downward cycle, and he usurps the Lord. He goes into the temple, and he ignores 81 priests, and he starts to offer the sacrifice. And God strikes him with leprosy, and he dies in isolation. So next up is Jotham, the great, 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 great grandson of Jehoshaphat. And Jotham is awesome. Finally, we got somebody, right? Jotham's great. He became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord, the text says. That should be our only priority this week. That should be my only priority this week. How different would our week go if we ordered all our ways before the Lord? Not asking him for approval after the fact. Well, God, I've made some plans. Would you please bless them? How many times do we pray like that? No, Lord, I got 168 hours this week. You own every one of them. I'm at your service. Order my plans. Order my ways. Show me the steps I'm so to take. Give me conversations where I can talk about the Lord. Give me opportunities to influence people spiritually. Give me a heart that's wholehearted for you so people look and hear my example. Not for my glory, Lord, but for yours. Give me priority for your word this week. Give me priority to, to spend time in your presence. Lord, I want to serve you. Imagine if we prayed like that every Monday morning rather than, oh, rats, it's Monday and it's snowing again. Are you kidding me? Look at my list. Come on, you know that's right. Lord, order my steps. See, Jotham was great. He, he was spiritually strong. The problem was the people were so used to compromising and spirit, being spiritually hard-headed, and those two go hand in hand. When you compromise spiritually, the more you do that, the more calloused your heart becomes. So the people were so used to that that they continued acting corruptly. So Jotham dies at 41, and he's succeeded by Ahaz, the great, 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 great grandson of Jehoshaphat. And Ahaz did what was evil. He brought back the idols. He burned incense. He burned his own sons as a sacrifice to Baal. So God sends the armies back in, the Arameans and the Israelites. And now 120,000 men die and 200,000 women are taken into captivity. And then the Edomites come in and the Philistines come in. It's like a circus. There are so many armies rolling around in Judah. And the Lord humbled Judah, the text says, because of Ahaz. But, but the people still didn't get it. And the text says that there was a lack of restraint in Judah and that they were very unfaithful to the Lord. Now stop and think about that sentence for a minute. A lack of restraint and being unfaithful to the Lord. In what areas of your life does that describe you? In what areas of your life and my life, put it on myself, is there a lack of restraint? Is there a, a, a unfaithfulness to the Lord, where sin is unbridled and sin is unrestrained. Don't glide over the question, because it's eternally important. And the impact isn't just on you. The impact is on so many people and on our generations. Our kids are watching what we're doing. They're learning about righteousness or they're learning about sin. 
They're learning about self-discipline or they're learning about anger. They're learning about dying to self or they're learning about indulging self. And then there are other believers around us. Younger and less mature believers are looking at us as an example. And older believers and more mature believers are looking at this to, to disciple us. And that doesn't even mention the people around us that don't know Jesus Christ that are looking to see if this whole talk about transformation and forgiveness and, and a radical life change is really real. And if they don't see it, they're going to go, well, why would I do that? Their hearts became calloused. For seven generations, for 155 years, there's a continuing cycle of spiritual decline, rebellion, resistance, refusal to listen to God's word, callousness and carelessness, and the cycle kept going on and on. And then finally, I'm at the end, but we're going to now read our text. Finally, Hezekiah becomes king. Write his name down, Hezekiah. He's the great, 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 great grandson of Jehoshaphat. And look at what it says about him in chapter 29 and verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, who was a prophet. In other words, his alliance now is better. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Praise the Lord. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Then he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of our fathers, and carry out the uncleanness out of the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. Let's stop there. Now, here's Hezekiah. And finally, after 155 years, finally after seven generations of this brutal, unspiritual, unholy cycle, he finally stands up and says, enough already. We're not going to keep perpetuating the cycle of destruction. We're going to stand for the Lord. And it says he did right in the sight of the Lord like his father David. David was 14 generations back. But Hezekiah looked at his life and said, God blessed him. David walked with the Lord. My great, 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 grandfather loved the Lord. He had a heart for the Lord. And when I look at his life and I hear about him, I see that God blessed him. Now I look back seven generations and all I see is mess. All I see is destruction and pain and heartache and God's discipline. So Hezekiah looks all the way back, 14 generations, and he says, my heart craves that. What does your heart crave this morning? What does your heart desire this morning? More than anything, do you desire the holiness of the Lord? I mean, listen now. The holiness of the Lord and the power of the Lord and the hand of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord. Is that, is that what your heart just, just jumps after, desires after, craves after? Or are you just going to continue to live in the destructive cycle of sin and rebellion, and faithlessness. See, the path that we choose impacts future generations. 
So how do we do this quickly? I got to be done. Look back at verse five. How do we prove our love for the Lord? How do how do we move forward in righteousness? Well, it says of Hezekiah that in the first year, in the first month, in other words, the Holy Spirit, that, that's not accidental information, okay? The very first month, like the first day, Hezekiah says, all right, let's get a new start here. Let's establish the house of the Lord. Let's open up the doors of the temple, meaning they were closed. Let's, let's make repairs on the door because they had fallen apart. Nobody was taking care of the temple, and the priests weren't, were working. So let's bring back the priests. See, this is a prioritization of time in God's presence. There's nothing more important, and nothing should have greater priority this week. When you look at your schedule, and we've all got one, where is the time for the presence of the Lord? I'm not, I'm not joking when I say that. Is there set aside time for the presence of the Lord? Then he says this great sentence, and it's in verse 5. He says, consecrate yourselves now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when the schedule eases up, not when those commitments aren't there, not when I get my life together and I get my act together and I have time to think. No, consecrate yourselves now. Consecrate's an awesome word. We don't use it enough. It means to sanctify or purify, to prepare, dedicate, be holy, and be set apart. See, we have this weird kind of hybrid Americanization view of holiness. And some of it comes out of the spiritual background that some of you grew up in, where, where it's kind of a do your best and try hard to obey. And that's, that's all you knew growing up. And then America kind of says, well, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your best. No, that's not consecration. Consecration is a lifestyle it is an uncompromising requirement that you put on yourself to be holy and set apart. Why? Because you love the Lord so much and because you're so grateful for his redemption and because you know the Lord is saying, walk like Christ. This is not rules. This is not do it because I said so. This is, have you seen the cross? Have you, do you remember that the tomb's empty? Do you remember that, that I gave my life for you and I took all your sins as my own and I died for them and now the stain of sin is gone and it's washing. Do you remember that? You do remember that? Good, now live for me. Now consecrate yourselves. Not out of obligation, out of love. But listen, con consecration, for it to happen, sacrificial choices have to be made. That's what love does. Love makes a sacrifice. So look at what he says in verse 5. You've listened so well. I know it's late. Look at verse 5. Consecrate yourselves now. And look at the next line at the end of the verse. And carry out the uncleanness from the holy place. What a, what a commission that is to the believers. If you're sitting there this morning and say, I'm declared righteous and God's given me a new holy nature, then I would ask you and I would ask myself, oh Lord, speak to me too. I would ask myself, then how can I pollute what God's declared and made to be holy with what's unclean? 
See, slowly, gradually, progressively, Judah allowed more and more impurity to collect in the house of the Lord, the most holy place. They treated it like it was some family minivan where you just keep throwing the stuff on the floor and you say, we'll get it later. And there are school papers and cups and, and, and little pieces of gum stuck to the carpet and it starts to smell. You know what I'm talking about, right? Come on, your van's not clean any more than mine is. And eventually you go, this is a mess. But you get used to your mess, right? That's what they did with the holy place. And Hezekiah comes along and he says, time to consecrate. Time to carry the uncleanness out. Listen, what uncleanness do you need cleared out of your life this morning? Maybe you're in an emotional cycle. Maybe you're living in the past. You're constantly dwelling on some hurt that somebody brought to your life. And you don't, you don't want to forgive. You don't want to forget. You don't want to move past. Or maybe it's just selfishness. We're all selfish. Or maybe you're in physical bondage this morning. You're, you're stuck in destructive behavior and vices. Or, or you're not taking care of yourself. I got convicted about this this week. I'm not taking care of myself. Or, or maybe you're, you're, you don't have a strong self-worth. And, and you've been hurt by what people have said over the years. Listen, the Lord can free you from that cycle. Or maybe you're in a spiritual cycle. You're continuing in sin. And, and, and kind of you don't care. You love yourself more than you love the Lord. Well, well, Paul, that's harsh. Is it? I, I don't know. I don't know your life. I know my life, and I know I struggle with that all the time. Love myself more than I love the Lord. And you neglect the word and you neglect prayer. I'm not coming down to you this morning. I'm just saying these are the cycles we find ourselves in. And the Bible says we need to consecrate ourselves. We need to clear out that junk and get rid of the uncleanness and, and, and give ourselves, uh, what's it called, a detailing, a, a spiritual detailing of our heart. Uh, we're, we're driving a, a new car that my parents helped us lease. It's beautiful. I love new car smell. It's just so awesome. And then I get in my old 18-year-old Acura and I go, ooh. This car needs to be detailed like six times in a row, and it still won't have new car smell. I'm being very serious when I say some of our hearts are like that this morning. We need to be detailed and detailed and detailed. And you know what? It starts with us saying, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to start to clean this out this junk because God's willing to cleanse me and God's willing to purify me but I got to get rid of this stuff whether it's a bad alliance or whether it's the junk that's gathering you're on a cycle that's just perpetuating and perpetuating and God says I want to do a refreshing work in your life I want to give you a new nature a new mind a new spirit and a new lifestyle of holiness but you got to yield to me Consecrate yourselves. Get the junk out. It's time for a change. We've got 155 years of mess. It's time to be clear. And I want you to write these verses down. I've talked too long. Chapter 29, verse 16 to chapter 31, verse 21. I want you over the next couple days to read those verses. Let me give you a preview. When they do that, Worship starts up, the people start to give, 
There's joy. They celebrate the Passover. Idols are destroyed. There's abundant blessing. They're delivered and prayers are answered. All by consecrating. They break the old cycle. They start a new cycle. And God says, now I'm going to work. I don't have to spend my time disciplining. I now can bless. And I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed by the Lord. I don't want the Lord to have to look at me every day and go, how do I have to discipline roads today? I want him to say, I want to open up the floodgates of heaven today. We're going to bless Paul. We're going to bless Harbor Rock. We're going to bless families. We're going to bless marriages. We're going to bless my people. 